Well, this morning is our final message in our Red Letter series. If you didn't hear any of the other messages, if you weren't here on a Sunday morning, or if you were here on a Sunday morning and you've already forgotten those messages, I'm going to try to help you understand what we've been talking about over the past 10 weeks. It's already been a 10-week series, believe it or not. Imagine for a moment that I have the ability, or you have the ability perhaps, to erase your memory with everything having to do with what you know or thought you knew about God and Jesus and the Bible and church and Sunday school and all those sorts of experiences. So just, just for a moment, think to yourself, okay, everything I knew about God and about the church is just, it's gone. You know, the girl that you used to date that dragged you to church when you were younger, the co-worker that was kind of that Jesus crazy person that would always kind of slip tracks under your computer or whatever it was, just, just try, to, try to get that out of your mind for a moment. And instead, just think, what do you know and what do we find in the gospel stories? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you could erase your memory and all you had was the stories of Jesus and the words of Jesus, the red letters that a number of our Bibles have, the, G- the words of Jesus printed in red, what would we learn? What would we find out about life? What sort of challenges would we have to think about? The words of Jesus have been preserved by these four gospel writers, and a number of the words that he says are words that are are kind of easy to ignore if you choose to. We can read different parts of the Bible, we can read uh, different authors, we can avoid some of the things that Jesus says, and throughout this series we've said, you know what, what if Jesus really meant what he said? Let's look at some of these challenging quotes of Jesus where he, he, uh, he delivered a parable, he spoke directly to people. What if Jesus really meant what he said? How would that change how you and I think? And how would that change how you and I would live? And so we've talked about some pretty heavy things over the past couple of months. For example, Jesus said that with faith, we could tell a mountain to be thrown into the sea and it would happen. Jesus said that it's impossible, not hard or unlikely. He said it's impossible for a rich man to get to heaven. Jesus asked who his mother and his brothers were when they were just standing outside the house without ear, within earshot. Jesus said that there will be people who will go away to eternal punishment. What if Jesus really meant what he said? Now, if you're here this morning and you've made a decision to follow Jesus, if you've made that decision and said, yep, Jesus is my Lord instead of me, and I'm going to do what I can to be obedient to him, then these are, these are words you have to grapple with. These are words that you have to wrestle with and think, what did Jesus mean? How am I supposed to live my life? And while today's topic is much different than these other topics, the concept is still the same. What if Jesus really meant what he said? Now, many of the words that Jesus spoke were words in response to questions. He was asked questions by a lot of people. There was people who asked him questions for healing. Will you heal me? And, and Jesus would respond to that. There were disciples. His disciples often asked him for explanations. They didn't understand what he said, and so he'd respond to those. There were sinners who would ask for forgiveness, and Jesus would respond to their requests as well. And there was also Pharisees, teachers of the law, scribes, religious authority figures, and they would ask him questions too. But... Quite often, they'd ask him a question so they could trap him, so they could trip him up, so that he'd contradict himself. They would build a trap, they'd ready a spring, and then they'd launch their question, and then they'd just kind of stand back and hope that their plot 
would work out for their benefit. And in one instance, they wanted to know, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, divorce happens. I can't think of anyone that hasn't had to deal with divorce in their lifetime. Each one of us knows someone that's gone through a divorce. Maybe your friend's parents went through a divorce. Maybe your parents went through a divorce. Maybe you personally have had to deal with the anguish of going through a divorce. Maybe you currently have a neighbor or a work colleague or a family member who's going through divorce. Maybe one of you have watched a child go through a divorce. In my experience, it makes no difference whether you grew up on the West Coast or the East Coast, uh, whether you had a lot of money growing up in your house or whether you had a little bit of money, whether you spent a lot of time going to church or whether you avoided church. Divorce seems to be one of those things that impacts all of us. And because of that, because of the very nature of the topic, it's difficult to talk about. It's difficult to think about. It's complicated. Now, I'm not in the business of devising difficult plots and throwing them out to theological figures, messianic figures. But if I were, and put myself in the place of the Pharisees, this seems like a pretty good plot. Because you think about the topic of divorce and all the things that come with it, history, regrets, heartache, pain. And then you add a little bit of religious law to it, and you add a crowd, got a whole bunch of people around, and then you just kind of let the trap unfold. So what would Jesus say about divorce? Well, the story we're going to look at today is found in three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark's version of the story is found in Mark chapter 10, but we're going to focus on how Matthew tells this story in his gospel, and his gospel lists it in chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, so it should be pretty easy for you to find. And Matthew starts his story by telling us that Jesus is in Judea, and large crowds have found him. We get this sense that wherever Jesus goes, people find him, find him and they tell everyone else, and, and we have like a herd of people that are following Jesus. And out of, out of compassion, once again, Jesus is ministering to them. He's healing them during this time. And as he's in the midst of spending time with people, he's approached by Pharisees, and they've plotted this trap. We get the sense that they've already kind of figured this out together and rehearsed what they were talking about, just like we saw the men do that beautifully during that announcement. Everything was rehearsed and, and dramatized in absolute amazing fashion. And so, and so we have the, the Pharisees, that they have this agenda, and they approach Jesus. And their best-case scenario in their mind is that they're going to have Jesus contradict himself or say something contrary to the Jewish law. They're experts of the law. They know the law extremely well. They're the authority figures. And so if they can get him to contradict himself in front of them, and you add the crowd, they have this perfect, this perfect recipe then for discrediting everything that Jesus is about. So beginning in verse 3 of Matthew 19, this is what happens. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, if you and I were were going to trap Jesus, we probably would have phrased this question a little bit differently. The Pharisees ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? We'd probably say, you know what, I'm not an expert of Jewish law here. Uh, I don't know the, the, the Roman 
law here at all either, but for any and every reason, that sounds pretty broad. Like, there's probably some parameters for divorce here. So why in the world do the Pharisees extend it so broadly, and why do they use this term for any and every reason? Well, it seems to be that they include this detail because they're actually citing a, a, a rabbi who was very well known. There was two rabbis, and rabbis are teachers of the law, and what happens is there's so many laws in, in the law of Moses that these rabbis, they're sort of like interpreters, they were commentators. So they, they applied this ancient law, and they, they would then explain it and write about it so the Jewish people could follow it to make sure that, that it was followed accordingly. And so there was kind of two houses or two schools of thought. There was these two rabbis, and they existed in the, in the first century, the early part of the first century, and so they differed on this topic of divorce. So the one house was called the house of Shammai, and this was the conservative school. They did their very best to follow the letter of the law. And so in their interpretation of divorce, which is founded in Deuteronomy 24, we're going to get there in a few minutes, they understood that it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife for an indecent matter. So if it was an indecent matter, then that was then grounds for divorce. The other school of thought, this is the house of Hillel, and they were the more liberal school. And when they looked at that same text, they said, well, it, it is, it's about an indecent matter, but the way that it's phrased, it's really about any matter of indecency. So in their mind, really, if there was ever a case when a man found his wife to be doing anything, any sort of matter of indecency, then that was not only grounds for divorce, but as they understood it, the man was commanded to divorce his wife. And to give a little bit of context for what this rabbi was was suggesting, even if the wife spoiled her husband's dish, the explanation was any matter. Any matter, any cause, any reason. I reminded my wife of this earlier uh, in the week. (laughs) Be careful, that looks like it's a little bit hot there on the stove. You know, any matter. So this, this is apparently why this, this little detail is included here in the text. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any matter, for any reason? But as we've seen throughout this series, it's very rare for Jesus to answer a question directly. And so they're asking Jesus about divorce, and listen what, to what he says in verse 4. Haven't you read... That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus asks a question about divorce and in response, he talks about marriage. They set the trap, they got the bait there, they asked Jesus very specifically, what school of thought do you, do you attribute yourself to, and, and what is this about divorce, are we supposed to do this, and what are the grounds for it? And Jesus says, well, don't, don't you remember the creation stories? Let's go back to Genesis. What was God's original design here? And Jesus says divorce was never part of the creator's design. And it wasn't just so much that divorce was unfortunate or, uh, or sad, or, or that it was regrettable. Divorce was actually unthinkable when you think about the first man and the first woman being created by God. Divorce was unthinkable from the beginning because the first man and the first woman were uh, intended for one another. 
and for each other alone. There were no other options. One man, one woman united together, divorce was unthinkable. How would it happen? And it seems to be that Jesus is is saying, if we carry the divine intent forward, if we understand how God originally designed marriage, then really there should be no other options for people who are married either. That's the intent. It's a permanent, lifelong relationship and commitment between a man and a woman. Divorce was never part of the divine plan. And yet, even though it was never meant to happen, divorce still happens, right? It wasn't part of the divine plan. It's almost never part of a couple's initial plan when they get married, but it does happen. And this may be why Jesus finishes his statement as he does. He finishes by saying, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And it doesn't seem that Jesus is saying, what God has joined together, no one can separate, as if it's impossible. He seems to be saying it is possible, but he's commanding the man and the woman not to separate. Because marriage was meant to be exclusive and long-lasting for the rest of their lives. So in essence, the point that Jesus seems to be making here is what God has joined together should remain together. This honors the Creator's design. Now, for as helpful as this teaching is, Jesus has really said little about divorce, hasn't he? I mean, he was asked about divorce, he avoids the question, and he talks about marriage, and so the Pharisees are probably thinking to themselves, well, there goes our trap, so let's get back into what we're here for. And so they ask a follow-up question. They ask Jesus very specifically here in verse 7, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, this is where we really get into this, this juicy debate. Here's the trap. If God designed marriage for a lifetime, as Jesus has just told the Pharisees, then why does Moses command the people of Israel to divorce? under some circumstances. Now, their question is in reference to Deuteronomy 24. If you have your Bibles and you want to flip back to it, you can do that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, number five. So if you want to go back at the beginning of your Bible, find Deuteronomy chapter four, go for it. It could be helpful in this instance. I'm going to summarize what those first four verses say, because basically it's this. A man can write a certificate of divorce, he can give it to his wife, and he can send his wife out of his house If, here's the condition, she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. And we get back to this debate between these two schools. Well, one understands, well, uh, it would be an act of indecency, and the other says, well, if there's any matter that the man would find indecent about her, then that is grounds to send her away. So it really kind of depends, and the question's up in the air, and there isn't a whole lot of clarity. Well, what could a man find in his wife that would make her indecent? What are we talking about here? Again, it would depend on what school of thought you would speak to. But the general consensus among the teachers of the law was that it had to, had to do with sexual immorality. Certainly at, at, a, at a core base, if there was adultery, if there was sexual unfaithfulness that the wife had, had um, been involved in, then that would have been grounds for the man to say, you have acted indecently and to write the certificate of divorce and to send her on her way. So if this is true, if Moses is saying, when this happens, you need to write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way, 
then how, does that, how do you weigh that with, with what Jesus just said is the divine intent of marriage, for it to be exclusive and long-lasting for the duration of, of that couple's life? Well, I want to refer to uh, author David Instone Brewer because he explains it perfectly in his book on this topic. He says, By arguing that Moses commanded divorce for adultery, they left no room for Jesus to say that a pious person could avoid divorce. And here's why. If you're pious, if you're righteous, then you have to follow the law. And if Moses is commanding people to, men to divorce in this situation, then how do you weigh those two equally? Think for a moment of the well-known story of the birth of Christ, which we usually visit around Christmas time. There's two versions of that story. Luke 2, the classic longer version that many of us have memorized to heart and which is beautifully uh, quoted in uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And then the lesser known version in Matthew chapter 1 that has the long genealogy and then a little bit of a different perspective. And that follows Joseph's story. Joseph, the, the man who was engaged to be married to Mary, Mary who was found to be with child. And the text, as it's speaking about Joseph, maybe you remember this, says, because he was a righteous man, because Joseph was a righteous man, he had it in mind to, what? Be compassionate to his wife and understanding? No. Because he was a righteous man, he had it in mind to divorce her in secret. Because he was righteous, he was going to follow the law, and he was going to divorce her. So... What's Jesus going to do here? Because no respectable teacher can contradict the law of Moses, right? Checkmate. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 8. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus says the root cause of divorce is hardness of heart. It's a hard heart that starts this, this whole direction of separation between a man and a woman. And the, the theme of having a hard heart is very common throughout the Old Testament. We see many stories that this idea comes up. But the context of this seems to be in relationship to how Jesus understands uh, the Old Testament and how the people of Israel relate to God. Now, a lot, in a lot of the prophetic writings, and we're going to look at Jeremiah here in just a second, there's this image, there's this image of marriage between a man and a woman and between God, the provider, the sustainer, the lover of the wife, Israel. And so it's a covenant relationship. It's this lifelong bond. And the prophets bemoan the fact that Israel, who's made this commitment, has now forsaken her husband, God, and, they, and she's gone off. And she's worshipped other gods, the gods of the nation. She's been unfaithful. And so time and time again, we have this language of marriage that's used between the nation and the God that the nation is to serve. And and listen to the words that Jeremiah uses in in chapter 3 of his book. He says about Israel, who has now run off again, you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. And later on in that chapter, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. A hardened heart is really a stubborn heart. It's an unyielding heart. It's a heart that's unwilling to repent. And it's the heart of an unfaithful spouse who refuses to repent and seek reconciliation with their partner. 
Now, the amazing thing about this parallel between an unfaithful wife and her husband and between an unfaithful people group, Israel, and her husband, God, is that in that case, God continually takes her back. Time and time again, God, when there, when there is uh, repentance, then God seeks to restore. There's a renewal of the covenant. There's forgiveness and restoration. He is the God who restores when there is repentance. But when there's no repentance, when there's no willingness of the spouse to return, when there's not only unfaithfulness, but there's stubbornness, and there's an unyielding heart, then sadly, divorce is permitted. But when a spouse is repentant, restoration is possible. This actually sounds very familiar to what Jesus says to his disciples when they say, Jesus, if someone sins against me seven times, how how should I respond? And Jesus says, if they sin to you seven times in a day and they turn to you seven times and repent, then you must forgive that person. So according to Jesus, Deuteronomy chapter 4, the law of Moses, it was actually a contingency law that was based on their hardness of hearts. Moses' teaching did not contradict God's original design. It was not a command. It was permitted. And it was introduced because marital breakdown is just a sad result of our fallen world. And sometimes it cannot be repaired due to the hardness of heart. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Verse 9, he's continuing to explain his rationale for for how he's responding here to the Pharisees. In verse 9, he says, I tell you this, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries someone else, or excuse me, marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, this is not an easy passage. It's not an easy passage to understand. It's an even more difficult passage to accept because on the surface it appears that Jesus condemns divorce in all instances except for the case of sexual immorality. And this phrase sexual immorality, which is again a little bit of a difficult one to to fully understand, it's back in reference to Deuteronomy 24, that description of of something that that, that a wife, wife would do, an indecent act. Plus, Jesus talks about the fact that remarriage after a divorce, there's adultery, there's further sin that's involved there. And to complicate even things even further, if we were to look at Mark's account of this story in Mark chapter 10, Mark doesn't include this exception. Matthew here says anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries someone else commits adultery. Mark just says, well, he doesn't say anything about except for sexual immorality. He removes that clause, that clause is not there. And if we took the time today to go through the questions of why and to compare the text and look back to the Old Testament and look at our original language and why this and why that and the context there and the the knowledge that people had, we would grow dizzy and our stomachs would grow hungry because we would be here for a very long time. But this is a very important question and it's a worthwhile discussion. And so rather than get into all the details, I'm going to do my best just to provide a possible explanation that came to my attention this week as I was reading David Instone Brewer. The trap that the Pharisees prepare, this trap that they have already set up for Jesus, it's all about the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. 
And the words are used in direct reference to the law of Moses. And because of this, Jesus may have added this context of Deuteronomy 24 to help people understand what Jesus is referring to. To give people like you and I a better understanding of of this exception clause and what was being talked about. I'm going to give you an example. Hopefully we can all relate to this. I often, people hear, I often hear people say, too often actually in my opinion, but I often hear people say, hey Keith, did you see the game last night? Or Keith, who won the game last night? Now, my knee-jerk reaction when I hear that is I think, oh man, that was a good NBA playoff game last night, wasn't it? Did I? No, I didn't, I didn't get to see that game. Or you know what? The Mariner game. Boy, they must be asking about the Mariners game and who won that game. Or maybe they know that my wife and I were playing a really competitive card game last night. They must be asking, who won that game last night? But then I remember, no, no. They're asking, did I see the Canucks game last night? (laughs) That's what they're really asking. But if I were to relay that conversation that I had with someone where they said, Keith, Who won the game last night? If I was talking to my brother, who does not live locally, who is not obsessed with the monotony of the local hockey team, (laughs) I would probably add in to that person's quote. I was asked, Keith, did you see the Canucks game last night? And I would add that in because of the context of the conversation. From what I can tell here what's happening in Matthew, it seems that Matthew's doing the same thing. They're talking about Deuteronomy chapter 24. They're talking about the context of marital unfaithfulness and indecency on on behalf of a spouse. And so while Mark leaves it out, it seems that Matthew includes it to help people understand they already understood this exception clause. This is what they were talking about. This might be why Matthew doesn't say anything, or Matthew does say something about it and Mark doesn't. But even so, even so, Sexual unfaithfulness does not make divorce mandatory. Spouse is not commanded to follow through with a divorce. The objective, God's desire in that situation, is for the offending, the offending spouse to repent, for the partner then to forgive, and for the relationship to be reconciled. That's God's divorce, or that's God's idea of what should be happening there. And the reason is, is because what God has joined together should remain together. But even still, there are so many questions that are left unaddressed in this passage and in this topic as a whole. What options does a person have if they're being physically abused by their spouse? What about when a person's spouse is in the midst of severe substance abuse? What if a spouse completely abandons their partner Now, Jesus doesn't respond to any of these questions. But to be fair, he hasn't asked any of these questions either. Jesus has only asked if it's lawful to divorce. And his response to this question is what God has joined together should remain together. And when Jesus is pressed even further, he says that divorce is a reality because of people's stubbornness, because of their hard hearts. It was never intended to go this way, because what Jesus has joined together should remain together. Now, the words of Jesus are at the same time beautifully descriptive and yet slippery enough to kind of keep us wondering. Now, his disciples may have felt this same sort of tension. 
Maybe they were a bit curious. Maybe they were frustrated. Maybe they were in awe of what Jesus said. Maybe they're feeling exactly what you're feeling right now. And their response to what Jesus has just said is if this is the situation between a husband and wife, this is verse 10, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. That's the conclusion that his disciples come to. Jesus, if what you're saying, if this is how God designed marriage, if this is the commitment you're talking about, well, all this stuff involved about a commitment for the rest of their lives, about leaving one's parents behind, about cleaving to one another, about doing this through, through difficulties too, and about repenting to each other, and about restoring each other. If this is what marriage is all about, well, maybe it's better not to marry at all. Now, maybe they were amazed at the very small limitations that, pe- that Jesus put on divorce. Maybe they were accustomed to this idea that really, if there was anything to be found indecent in a woman that a man was married to, and again, we're talking about a, a large a society that was dominated by men, and, and that was the rights were given to men here. Maybe they were, that was so ingrained in their mind that they had difficulty even thinking about restoring someone, forgiving someone, should they have wronged their husband. Maybe it was the only conclusion that the disciples could get to because Jesus' view of marriage was so much loftier than they could imagine. Jesus goes on to say in the rest of that passage that refusing to marry, that choosing to remain single for the sake of God's kingdom is an honorable decision. It's a great choice. More shocking words coming from Jesus because in, in this Jewish society, this command to be fruitful and multiply, there was this pressure, there was this expectation that you get married and you have kids and that's fulfilling God's plan for your life. And Jesus, again, he inverts this, this popular notion and he says, no, the, the greater purpose here is being obedient and about fulfilling this kingdom of God and living for that kingdom of God. And guess what? You can do that as a married person. You can also do it as a single person. And Jesus shows that he's an advocate for both marital choices, provided that it's pursued with God's design in mind. And God's design for marriage is that what he's joined together should remain together. Now, what does this message mean to you? As a remarried mother, as a married man, as a single woman, as a divorced man. Jesus gives us a picture here in this passage that is, it's, it's like a, a painting. It's this beautiful image of what marriage was intended to be. When God designed the world, when he created man, when he created woman, and he intended them for each other, this is, this is the utopia image. This is what it was intended to be. This is what it should look like. And now as, as he's talking about the kingdom of God, which is the restoration of, of our world from sin, the ugly, dark sin that's, that's just ruined all of us in one sense or another, he's once again pointing to this image. Because there was no divorce at the beginning, the kingdom of God is all, all about restoring the world from the plague of sin. Now, if you have no interest in the kingdom of God, if you're here this morning and the kingdom of God sounds like something that you have no interest in living towards and you think, I'd rather live according to my kingdom, 
I'd rather live according to the values of the society because I perceive this to be a better choice for my life and I don't understand that and that feels restrictive and all that other stuff. That's your choice. You can choose to do that. Hopefully this message gave you a bit of an idea for why God designed marriage as it has been designed and why some men and some women, they enter into that marriage covenant and they said, you know what? To death do us part. This is the vision that we have because this is the vision that we understand how God created for it. But if that's not for you, you have the right to choose as you will. Now, in my mind, it's not a great choice because I'm convinced that God designed our world and Jesus has given us commandments for our good, that it represents life. And so, though we may feel restricted, when we won't think, well, that's not very fun or that's not very adventuresome, what Jesus is doing, he's protecting us from the evil and the deception of our world. But you must choose for yourself what you think about marriage and how you will live as a single person or as a married person. Now, if you have chosen to follow Jesus, if you have accepted this idea of, yeah, I want to pursue the kingdom of God, I'm all about this, I want to be obedient to him, then you have to look at this intention for marriage and you have to see how it interplays with your understanding of marriage. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're widowed, This is the image of marriage that Jesus paints for us. It's the ideal. And the reason why it's so big and it's so grand is because Jesus' plan for humanity is so big and so grand and so amazing. Michael Green says it this way. He says, It's not possible for the ethics of the kingdom of God to be articulated in anything less than ideal terms. And yet the Lord is consistently compassionate to those who fail, those who repent, those who come back to him for restoration. We should remember that within this story in Matthew chapter 19, it follows a parable about God's incredible mercy and grace. Sin is failing to measure up to the standard that God has for us. We sin when we dishonor our parents. We sin when we act out of arrogance. We sin when we hoard our resources. We sin when we judge others. And we sin when we break the bond that we made to our spouse and to God. But for every sin, for every sin, there's a remedy. A wrongful divorce is not an unpardonable act. A wrongful remarriage is not an unpardonable act. Each sin carries a different consequence. And while the effects of divorce are often very weighty, and while they can be very long-lasting, it doesn't mean that God does not forgive and that he does not restore when there is repentance. And so if you're here this morning and you've walked down that road of a painful separation or painful divorce, and you have gone through that confession, that repentance, and you've sought restoration, you need to know that you're forgiven you're forgiven. It's not an unpardonable sin. If you've not walked down this road, you need to know that you are just in as much need of forgiveness as those who have experienced marital breakdown. You need the grace of God just as much as anyone else. And thanks be to God that no matter our sin, no matter our past, no matter our failure, he has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west which last time I checked is a really, really far distance from each other. Now, we can't change the past, but we can be forgiven of our past. 
and we can change how we choose to live from here on out. If you're looking for a challenge here this morning and you're wondering what sort of application you can apply to your life, it's this. Be an advocate of marriage. Be an advocate for marriage. If you're a married person, be an advocate for your own marriage. You got to do this. How can you make your marriage that much better? Be an advocate for your spouse. Put your spouse's interests above your own. Treasure your spouse. Make sure you devote time to each other. Make sure that you dream together. Make sure that you share your life together. Talk about any sort of unresolved issues that you have. If there's anything currently or in the past that you feel like, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. I'm just going to bury it and move on and hope that it gets better. Typically, in these situations, time is not your ally. Typically, it stirs up resentment and bitterness and months or years down the road, you'll find out that that was actually a pretty big issue that you chose to bury. Be an advocate for your marriage. Do everything you can to restore and to celebrate what you have together as a couple. Reaffirm your commitment to each other. Maybe that's something you want to do today or later on this week. It doesn't have to be a big thing where you get a whole bunch of people together and renew your vows. No, just look your spouse in the eye and says, you know what? What we've joined together, it should remain together. Husband, wife, what, what we join together, let's make this stay together. Be an advocate for your marriage. And be an advocate for your friend's marriage. We all know married people, whether you're married or not. We all know married people. Be an advocate for their marriage. It's easy to hear someone uh, to talk about the woes of their own marriage or how they're discontent with something or how their spouse does this or does that. Be an advocate for their marriage. Paint the same vision that Jesus paints in the scriptures. Listen to them. Offer to pray for them and with them. Be an advocate for your friend's marriage. And prayer is central to this for your own marriage, for a friend's marriage. If we're going to be advocates of marriage, we need to be praying people. And we're going to have people from our prayer team who are available to pray with you this morning. We're going to close in, in just a couple of minutes. So Spencer and Meg and Ralph, they're going to be up front. If you want to pray about anything, your own marriage, a friend's marriage, something completely unrelated, that you just want someone to be there and listen and pray, then please pray with these people. They'd love to listen to you and to support you in prayer. Be an advocate of marriage. Celebrate it. Celebrate it because our world rarely celebrates marriage. It can be challenging to remember God's design for marriage because we're much more familiar with living in this world. We're much more familiar with the values and the concerns of this world instead of this, this kingdom of God that Jesus so beautifully paints and that he so marvelously describes. We can easily value independence and self-gratification over loyalty and sacrifice. Because that's what we hear all the time. Independence. Indulge yourself. Do what you want. Instead of these virtues of loyalty and sacrifice and renewal with each other. We can easily believe the ideas that the love is no longer there and that there are irreconcilable differences in our relationships instead of doing what Jesus says. Choosing to repent. Choosing to forgive one another. So be an advocate of marriage because what God has joined together should remain together. And when we do this, when we choose to do this, can you imagine what sort of church, what sort of community it would build? Can you imagine if we're all advocates of marriage, 
how it would strengthen each and every marriage. Can you imagine this sort of picture and this hope and this trust that the children would have knowing my mom and my dad are in this for the rest of their life? They repent of things. They, they recommit to each other. They're in this. Well, can you imagine what that does for your child? Unbelievable when they have that security as a child. Can you imagine what it does to our community to know the people of Jericho Ridge, these are, these are people who are advocates of marriage? Whether they've been wounded in the past, whether they're struggling now, we know that this is the vision that they're working towards, that they're doing everything they can to support and be advocates of marriage. Can you imagine how this will be helpful for those who are currently hurting in their marriage or have been hurt in the past? Do everything that you can do to be an advocate of marriage. And do everything you can do for those who have been joined together, that they will remain together. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you, first of all, for being the creator and the designer of marriage. We know, Lord, that it is a good thing 